Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io/ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When I was coming up in the acting profession, there were two teachers you had to take classes from, Milton Katsalas in Los Angeles and Wynne Handman in New York. I studied with both and both contributed to my technique, but Handman also influenced my approach to life and to my coworkers on screen and on stage. His goodness, kindness, and generosity shone through in a professional world too often characterized by cutthroat competition and one-upmanship. Over the years, an astonishing array of talent passed through Handman's studio. Christopher Walken, Raul Julia, Richard Gere, Anna DeVere Smith, Joanne Woodward, Mia Farrow, and on and on. But after 70 years, yes, 70, enrollment is finally closed. In April, Hanman became one of New York's victims lost to COVID-19. I was finally able to get him to record an interview for Here's the Thing in 2018, and I'm bringing you our conversation today. I witnessed as Wynne made real progress with some marginally talented actors but he remained humble about what teachers can do. If they don't have the right uh, stuff inside them, I can't do it. So there's a basic thing they need. Yeah. The basic thing is actors are highly suggestible people. If I suggest something to you, you'll go with it. We're too gullible for everyday life. So one of the things they have to draw upon is their ability to be suggestible because what is it? You're suggesting something to yourself so you inhabit the reality in an imaginary situation. And if you can do that, then you can take people on the journey. I have recently noted people I took who had no background and not that much going, and now they're doing Shakespeare and the Greeks 
And I said, hey, that's good. And uh, I, I recently said to one, I said, you know, I've been congratulating myself because what, where I've taken you in your acting. Yes, uh, the tremendous improvements can be made. Well, it's interesting to me when I'm with my children, you see the actor's nature. They want to believe. <laughs> see, that's what Sandy Meisner, uh, well, way back, Sandy was my mentor. And uh, he would say, it's like when you played cops and robbers or when you played house when you were a kid. Get that back, that naive innocence of believing. Where did you meet Meisner? And tell people who Meisner was then. He was a member of the group theater. And uh, the group theater embraced the Stanislavski system, and they, they trained with that. But Sandy was best known for teaching at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater. And he had been teaching there maybe from the late 30s. Uh, I got to him in 46 as a returning GI. I had been in the service four years, so I had uh, the wonderful GI Bill. I wanted to say that's one of the best things that America produced was the GI Bill. I went there uh, uh, under the GI Bill. And uh, when I got there, I had no experience whatsoever. I had only seen a few plays. You discovered the theater yourself in Boston when you came home from the war? I saw... Uh, Paul Robeson in Othello with Uta Hagen and Je Jose Ferrer. Mm. It was uh, just on leave. Uh, and it was maybe about the fourth play I had seen in my life. When I was in the service, I was there for four years. I had been a jazz musician, but I realized I was at you best. You played the saxophone. Yes, second rate. Uh, I wouldn't have, that wasn't going to make that my profession. And I absolutely did not know what to do. And I was on the ship waiting for it to be decommissioned. Then I faced the reality that I should have a future. What am I going to do? And I decided to uh, try acting. I had never acted. I had nice experiences. But whose idea was that? Mine, because <laughs> I had good experiences I didn't do many things that my father felt I did well. But when I did, you may talk a gin and beer when you're quartered safe out here, and you said to penny fights and all to shot it, then you'll do your work on etc. Or the face on the... When I did those poems for him, he liked it a lot. And so, he was your first audience. And I got a good, a good response. What'd your dad do? He had a printing business. You grew up in Inwood. Yeah. I lived on a dirt road <laughs> in an apartment house. You know where Fort Triumph Park of is? Of course. It was right across the street from what became Fort Triumph Park. But when I was a child, it was woods. And uh, we had a dirt road. And it was a farm across the way, a farm with chickens and all kinds of things. When the Depression came along, the farm left. The dirt road got paved. And uh, it became a miniature golf course. And I was a caddy in a miniature golf <laughs> course. What does a caddy do to me? <laughs> I, I kept the score. But anyway, when I was on a ship, it was a North Atlantic anti-submarine duty, uh, escorting convoys up to northeast Greenland. Uh, you you are, spend a lot of time in the wardroom with your uh, shipmates. They play cards things to do while you're not on watch. And we had some records on the ship 
that were of monologists. In those days, they were called sure, yeah, yes. the people who performed <laughs> in nightclubs, and they was usually a little bawdy. And there was one that I was particularly attracted to. His name was Dwight Fisk. And uh, he had been performing at the Monkey Bar at the uh, Elysee Hotel. What hotel? The Elysee, where Tennessee Williams died. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, I uh, memorized the monologues. I listened to the records, and I did them for my shipmates, and they liked it. And I, I, I like getting laughs, and this is a sure so laugh. So when you were in the military, when you were in the, when you were in the, you were in the, 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 you were in the Navy. Well, it was the Coast Guard really under could. the Navy. So you're, so you're there, and with the guys there during the war, you're cracking them up. Yeah. And entertaining them. Yeah. What kind of material did Fisk do? Bawdy songs. Yes. Uh, here's a, one line from it. And out stepped Mr. Pettibone, just as naked as a child and twice as cocky. <laughs> you would have liked to have done that monologue. Anyway, that encouraged me. So when I was waiting to get out... Uh, they could be turned to civilian life. I said, well, what I enjoyed was when the, my shipmates, and they enjoyed my doing those monologues. And when my father liked it when I did Gunga Din, why don't I try acting? That's the only thing. Uh, and how did it go? You tried it, and what happened? I went to the—I luckily, I didn't, know, I didn't know one school. I didn't know anything. There was a guy on the ship with me who seemed sophisticated and while we were waiting for the ship to be decommissioned in Norfolk, Virginia. And I said to him, I said, I want to uh, try acting when I get out. I have the GI Bill. I can go to school. He said, well, there's only one school to go to. And I said, what's that? He said, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. So as soon as I got out in uh, May '46. I went to the American Academy. You know where it was? Where? It had two floors on the top of Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, uh, we have too many returning GIs. You can't apply. I said, I can't even apply? No. Uh, you do monologues. So I, I saw the pack of monologues, and I learned it, but they never let me do my audition monologue. So I was disconsolate because I didn't know of any other school. So you didn't audition for the American Academy? No. Where'd you go then? Well, I was dating a woman. I believe her name was Doris. Well, <laughs> I said, you know, I can't, I can't even apply at the American Academy. I want to try acting. She said, well, go try the Neighborhood Playhouse. I hear that's the best school. And that's the first acting school you attended? The first and only. And what happened was Sandy interviewed me and took me. I think he took me because I talked about improvisation, because I did it as a saxophonist. But also I had written one poem when I was on the ship waiting to get out. And he, I think that impressed him. Here's the short poem. Home now, feeling the years of war-spent youth, not time apart nor interlude furiously lived, forgotten now, like motion picture with yawning exit to routine. I knew I didn't want the yawning exit to routine, so I wanted to try acting. So I got into the playhouse. I immediately caught on. How many people are in the program when you're there? You walk into a classroom, how many are there? Oh, there are about 20, 25. Like it is now. There's a couple, maybe a couple dozen of yeah. us. And uh, inside of two weeks, 
because Sandy saw I was catching on, and a lot of them didn't, to what he was trying to get at. Uh, he said, you work with her. You work with him. He had no patience with them. I had such an affinity for what was going on that it was the first time in my life I felt this is what I can do. Which is to teach. Teach, direct, yeah. Work with acting. You no longer want to be an actor. You want to be an acting teacher. Does that happen quickly? Uh, no, no, I wanted to be an actor. Uh, and how much acting did you do? Uh, not that much because I moved into directing. Sandy, uh, Sandy was like my guardian angel. Sure. Very he, smart he, guy. He latched on to me. I was assisting him at the at the end of the first year. He was doing a, a play called Truckline Cafe, right. which had been— Brando. Yeah, Brando was successful on Broadway. Right. And so that was the second-year class's graduation, and there was an eight-year-old child in it. He had no patience to work with that eight-year-old <laughs> child. He said, you work with her. Right. It turned out to be someone whose name was Susan Plachette. Oh, my goodness. My goodness. <laughs> now, when you're there, uh, you look back now, yeah. and you've been teaching for quite a long time. Yeah, since, you've been teaching since, for since Sandy started me in, in uh, 1950. Okay, so you've been teaching for <laughs> since the stagecoach years, without a stop, right? And so, and, and with that in mind, can you look back now from your perspective and say, what were Meisner's strengths and weaknesses as as a teacher? Uh, well, he was enormously perceptive uh, and could pick out what you weren't doing and what kind of suggests what you should be doing, and expressing it in ways that you could hold on to, like he'd say, uh, everything prepared but the acting, or uh, as ifs, uh, you know, metaphors. Uh, he, he had good ways of suggesting that. His criticism sometimes could be cutting. He was uh, direct. Too direct. Right. Uh, That's what I meant. When, when he was going to—see, I had been a, a naval officer and on a ship— if it was going to ram uh, and hit something, stand by for a ram. Well, Sandy would uh, put his glasses on his forehead, and I would say, stand by, by for, for a ram. ram. <laughs> I'm going to use that. When he did that, it was bad. Uh, because he didn't suffer you, fools. you don't get over that fast. Right. Uh, and criticism at that level, you see, it's a tremendous responsibility to be an acting teacher, because you can say one thing that could damage someone for life. Yeah. It's so precarious. And that, and that, by the way, I want to interject for my listeners here. I mean, why I was so keen on doing this with you was because that, that nurturing and that kindness, your reputation in New York when I first came here was you were a very supportive and kind and nurturing teacher. The late director and teaching legend, Wynne Hampton. More coming up.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When Handman shares with his mentor, Sanford Meisner, the move away from so-called effective memory, that's the method acting staple of summoning one's own emotional experiences in order to channel the character's trauma or joy. But Handman's warm embrace of his students stood in sharp contrast to the man who first gave him his shot. It's not my nature to hurt people. And it's in my nature to uh, bring people along and know how vulnerable they are. See, when I be Sandy said, "You will," he says, "You will become my assistant, and you will have an apprenticeship of humility." <laughs> he said that that directly, and he said, "You will watch every one of my classes and do your own." And I did that. So I saw more Sanford Meisner classes than anyone because he ordered me to do it. And I thank him for it because I learned from it. But I could see where he set people back because of the tension, and I felt it. I mean, Why I want, do you think he did that? Did he believe that was in their interest? He had that nature. He could be very mean and nasty. And abrasive to people, yeah. yeah. So Meisner was known, obviously, in a very kind of a, a basic sense for this repetition technique, the Meisnerian thing. Did you not see that present No, then? that Is wasn't that done then. It wasn't. He didn't do it. When, and I know why he developed it. Why? Because it was the period of naturalism and, you know, strong realism, living off the other person. 
what the repetition does is it, it makes you go off the other person. Fuck you. Well, I said fuck you. know That kind of thing. Right. But then they became his whole system, his right. whole method, which is absolutely ridiculous. Do you think that's true? That did become his whole system? Aren't there teachers around who they teach Meisner? And that's and it. And so what do you do? Well, right. we do repetition. We do repetition. That's yeah, Meisner's how long can you do repetition exercise? Maybe a week or something? No, the whole se- semester. Well, I think it's for teachers who don't have the chops to really teach. So they watch these people go back and forth with their repetition. Yeah. Well, Sandy was everything to me. He, you know, he trained me. Yeah. And uh, he moved me right along. He could be very tender. So when my first child, Laura, was born, he gave her a little thing from Tiffany, a, a pearl. And every birthday, he gave her another pearl. And I, may, I said he's our godfather. And he got me started directing because he, there was up in the Adirondacks, there was a... It was a leftist adult camp. A leftist very, adult camp? It was very political. What are you saying? Oh, it was, was political. He, he said, you, you should direct that company. I was not married yet, but I, my wife-to-be was a truly great woman. Anyway, I sat on a bench with her up at uh, Columbia University where she was at Barnard. I said, Sandy wants me to direct. I'm not. She says, do it. Yeah. And when Bobby I did it, Bobby, oh, that was so right for me. I had my own company. I did play after play, and uh, I, I knew I was a director. Now, what do you think Lee's strength was? Uh, or were you critical of him? Yeah, I'm not a fan of Lee's okay. strength. That's okay. That's okay. First of all, a lot he, of people weren't. His speaking gave me a headache. Right. He is an example. I had a student who took his directing course, and um, and he used two of my students. One of them was uh, Dallas from North Carolina, and another woman from Jackson, Mississippi. They did a scene, and he was very critical. So he had them do what he had, his, his emotion memory, and they did it, and, and he was very pleased. But she said to him, yeah. But Dallas was in North Carolina, and I was in Mississippi. He didn't transfer into saying, well, whatever you're getting from that, now move it into Into where you are now. One of the things you learn in basic acting, and acting is doing, because you have an intention, a purpose, because out of your want. Well, they, they got so preoccupied with physical things like itches and and pains and behavior behavior that they lost the intention and that was no good i was critical of that but he let that go well there are people who do scene work in classes it can it could be scene work at the actor's studio which isn't really scene work it's more like previous circumstances or prior circumstances mm. they do a lot of different kind of exercises there uh, 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 for those who don't know what I mean, you, you take a scene from uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and let's go back and do the scene that happened a couple of days before that we make up and we improvise what's, what are known as the prior circumstances, and we improvise that. But uh, these exercises, which is really the bread and butter of the studio. Yeah, uh, uh, inhabiting the character. Right. If you get in the character, then the character does the work for you. Right. 
It's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, well, I, that's training. Right. So I've developed something called a character interview. So if you're working on the role, I say, well, before you come back in, put down four questions you want to be asked about yourself. What are they? Oh, well, you, they make them up for their own. Oh. But then I know what the I material is. I thought you were about to give me the secret to great acting. See, Again. I, I know what the material is about. Right. So uh, then I have my own questions in mind. And I don't let them do the scene, but I, I only get them improvising in this character that we're developing. So then when they get to the scene, the character is inside. Right. People remember it when it's inhabited. When do things end with Meisner? You're done with Meisner. You guys part ways when? 55. And then in the, in the, between 55 uh, and 63. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Okay. Uh, he taught first year was basic acting. Now, basic acting uh, is important, but it got boring to me. And I was teaching more basic acting courses than he was. So when the, the new season began and uh, I saw the schedule... I said, hey, I can't do this much basic acting anymore. It's like mountains ahead of me. I just can't take it. So he flew up. He got very angry, and I got angry, and uh, I left. I had a certain independence, which he gave me. Right. Because I immediately you were ready, you got were ready to— You were ready to fly the coop. Sure. Between 55 and when you open American Place, what do you do? You start teaching privately? No, I was teaching classes. I was teaching four classes, each with 20 or more people. Where? I had my own studio so on West 56th Street. What was it called? Just the Winham Studio. And when did you start American Place Theater? I started it in the early 60s, 63. Why? Why did you want to start a theater? Because it wasn't enough for me to teach. I was reaching, uh, I guess it was midlife crisis. What am I going to do with my life? I'm teaching very well, and I like doing it, and I can do it. But is there more I can be doing? Well, what was in the air at the time was not to just do Broadway kind of theater, but to do others. So Bruce Stein had an article about, the, you know, Robert Bruce Stein, the critic. And uh, there was an article called The Plight of the Serious Play, which I saw in the New York Times. And uh, quotes from George Bernard Shaw, which I'll do one, which meant a lot to me, and I'd like to record it. Uh, you, you see, George Bernard Shaw was a theater critic in the 1890s, and he for three years. And when he finished with that, he started writing plays. But he, they published all of his criticism in the collection called Our Theater in the 90s. He said this, more people went to the theater in London when I was reviewing than went to church. This would be a very good thing if the theater took itself seriously as a factory of thought, an elucidator of social conduct, an armory against despair and dullness, and a temple of the ascent of man. Well, I carried that around. I said, this is what I have to fulfill. So it got me started looking for plays that that he also, in one of his reviews, said something very meaningful to me. He said, well, this plays an entertainment. Nothing wrong with that. Not a serious revelation of mankind to itself. 
That's what we're really about. Yeah. Give us two examples, male, female, who came through your doors, who you just excited you. You knew they had it. They went on to become great actors. Uh, Michael Douglas, he said, you asked me if it was all right if I could call your mother and tell her how good you are. I knew his mother. Right. And he was good. <laughs> yes, he, he was good. He was very good right and What about off. a woman? What's an actress who came through your doors? Alison Janney. Right. Alison Janney. Incredibly talented woman. Yeah, you just give Remarkable. her a role. And, and she can do it all. She can do it all. Right. <clears throat> now, And I should mention one you never heard of. Her name is Mary Alice Bai. Uh, and I, I directed her in a summer theater up in the Bosch Belt area in the 50s. And uh, I just couldn't get over her talent. With one word, this actress uh, was a summer stock play, four-poster, The Evolution of a Marriage. And then there's one sequence where the man has gone off and been with another woman. Now he came back. She loved that man. All she said was, you? And that you (laughs) is still with me. It just bounced off every wall of every theater because she had so much going down here for her love for this man, Mary Alice. Right. Now, I caught Laurence Olivier at a performance of The Entertainer, which was on a Thursday, and David Merrick— In New York. Yeah, in New York— and the word was out, well, he missed his performance. He wasn't as good as he had been in England on the opening night on Wednesday. Well, Merrick wanted to get eight performances in, so he had a Thursday matinee. He had to fill the theater, so it was all actors. And when Olivier walked on stage, the, they applauded and, uh, and greeted him. And from that entrance on... He was so in that character. He's never been in a character like that. That was absolutely memorable. Uh, Not just one moment, but memorable. But there are moments like when uh, I saw the original Streetcar, when when Marlon was hearing the sisters talk about how an animal, uh, Blanche was saying he's an animal. Don't hold back with the apes, she says. He was out there listening you got so much from him that you sure. see it's still in the air. Pig, Pollock, yeah. disgusting, yeah. vulgar, greasy. When, when Them the, words have been on your lips and your sister's too much around here. <laughs> Remember what Huey Long said, every man is a king. <laughs> and I am the king around here. And don't you? And I smash my hand. I go backstage, all my knuckle was all bleeding. But I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I was so happy. I remember how good you were. Your class, I always remember, because you were so encouraging. I mean, but we got into it. You mean yeah. you had that freedom to just uh, uh, explore each other emotionally, you know, and uh, that love, you know, which you just can't fake on stage. When I teach now, I say, do yourself a favor. I say, really luxuriate in this now, this process, because when you get older and you go to work, it's all Arthur Murray. <laughs> it's all steps on the floor. And you Arthur Murray and taught me dancing in right. a hurry. Right, I right, had right. a week to spare. He showed me the groundwork, the walking around work, told me to take it from there, etc. You know something? We're going to end with that. We're going to end with your Arthur Murray song. Well, thank you. Right. And I'm very too. glad we met. Wynn Handman, founder of the American Place Theater, mentor to thousands 
father to Laura and Liza, husband to the late Bobby Handman, and a force for good in the world of acting and beyond. Rest in peace, Wynn. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.